reading this morning um, comes from Acts chapter 9, verses 26 through 31. And it's about Saul in Jerusalem. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray and uh, ask for God's help this morning. Father, we come now to the life-giving pages of your word. We pray that as our good shepherd, you would feed us and mold us and teach us and show us your glory so that you will send us out changed at the sight of your glory from one degree of glory to the next this day, that this week we would be a community on mission, preaching the gospel of peace and forgiveness and repentance so that all the nations in this world, all the nations that are here in Detroit, all the nations in our city and state, uh, Father, would glorify your great name. So do what we pray. Amen. So after a week uh, of vacation, I was just on vacation too. Um, so after a week of vacation, though, my wife turned to me um, in a two-bedroom, probably because it was a two-bedroom cottage, really small, about the size of, I don't know, like this, with three kids. Um, she looked at me and said, it'll be really nice to be home. Right? You have that feeling sometimes. No matter how great vacation is, sometimes it's just really good to be home. Home is a special place, right? And even if you don't have what some would call a good life or didn't come um, from uh, a background that, you, that people would call a good home life, home isn't so much a place then as it is another person maybe um, or a group of friends. We all have that special place or friendship, or group of relationships that we call home, or that we yearn for if we don't have that. Maybe for some of you, you found home for the first time here in the church, right? And that's how it should be, right? Whether you had a good home life or not, you should come in to a body of believers and feel at home for the first time. That The church, the local church, should be that most real, that most true expression of home, right, here on earth that we were created for, a little slice of the new heavens that we read about at the end of Revelation. That's what you should feel when you walk in here. So whatever side of the spectrum you find yourself on, whether you're like me and we're blessed with a good home life, or maybe for some of you, you found home for the first time after years and years of looking for it here in the church. Whatever side of that spectrum you find yourself on, we all know that being displaced is never the ideal, right? You never, you never like feeling that sense of you're in between somewhere where you're supposed to be and that tension of being displaced. We all know that that's not where we want to be, but that's where we find Saul, right? Here in Acts chapter 9. His whole world had been turned upside down. At the beginning of the chapter, uh, Saul leaves home leading a persecution hunt to Damascus. And as we know, he falls off his horse or knocked off his horse or whatever. He doesn't know how to ride his horse and he gets converted, right? He's converted miraculously. And then he spends his 
time in Damascus, preaching the gospel that he hated just a few days before and proving to the Jews there who thought they, you know, that they thought he was coming to help them round up the church. Now he's preaching to the Jews and proving to them that Jesus is the Christ, right? So they plot to kill him. They plot to do what he was plotting to do, right? And uh, so now the people that he came to persecute, right? How, how upside down is Saul's life now? The people who he came to persecute now save his life and get him out of the city, right? And he heads to Jerusalem seeking out the disciples there, right? Which is a reasonable thing to do when your life is turned upside down. And we all know being displaced is not the ideal. We want to go home. So that's what Paul does. After a long business trip, you kind of want, you can't wait to get home. If you go away to school, right, um, you, you can't wait to get home, either whether you're in grade school so you can start doing whatever you want, or maybe you went away to college and you realize how bad the food is and how good you had it at home. You long, you long to get home. Um, after long days of work, you look forward to spending the evening with friends or family. And so here, Paul attempts to go home. Right? To the household of God. He tries to reconnect as a single member to the rest of the body of Christ in Jerusalem. But there's a little bit of a problem, isn't there? Right? The believers in Jerusalem weren't really excited to see him. Right? He shows up at their doorstep and, and they cross their arms instead of standing there with arms wide open. And that seems kind of reasonable too, doesn't it? I mean, Saul had persecuted them. When he left, he hated them. He had just executed Stephen. We read in the earlier parts of the chapter that he breathed murderous threats against the church, was going door to door in Jerusalem, dragging men and women off to prison if they were disciples of Jesus. And if they didn't get thrown in prison, he scattered them throughout the region because of his hate, because of his venomous hate of the gospel. People were displaced from their home for their faith in Jesus. So many of these disciples here in verse 26 had their lives threatened by this guy who now showing up on their doorstep. Or had people who were no longer in their lives in one way or another because of this guy. And now here he is, right? He shows up on their door saying, hey, I'm a disciple too. Like, like, what? Right? And fear, fear rose up in their heart and they didn't believe him. Surely this guy who left for Damascus just at the beginning of this chapter is now back here. And this is his new strategy, right? This is his new strategy to get into the church. He, he used all his other strategies in Damascus, and now he's changing tactics, right? So now he's just going to be, pretend to be one of us, so he can know where we meet, who we are, who our leaders are, so then he can drag us off to prison too, all right? So this response, though, gives us a little opportunity. It gives us a glimpse, right, to look into their hearts and an opportunity to look at our own, right? So if we were there, right, pretend we were the early church, and the outside world hates us, right? And people are trying to kill us. And the main guy who's trying to all of a sudden walks in here. What would we do? How would we respond? There were no welcome mats laid out for Saul, right? What, like you're going to have the parade in, in a couple weeks, right? No one's having a parade for Saul when he comes back to Jerusalem, right? He was a Jesus-hating murderer, right? So it's reasonable. They didn't want him around. But he was. He was a Jesus-hating murderer, right? When God's grace hunted down the hunter on the road to Damascus, you know what we found out? We found out that all of Saul's sins were laid on Jesus. And instead of getting what he deserved, Saul gets Jesus' righteousness. So now in order to accept them into his community, that community of believers has to forgive him as well. 
Right? So when Saul came to the believers in verse 26, we read, And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. So that gives us an opportunity to look at our hearts, right? What leads, what leads a whole group of people to have the gut reaction? There's no way that guy, no way that guy is a disciple. What leads to that gut reaction? Right? Now, surely part of it is the just horrific nature of their sin. His sin, excuse me. Right? I mean, it's just horrific what he did to the early church. So surely some of the disbelief is, is because of what he has done. But it's not pure self-preservation that leads them to this fear. Their fear flows from a failure to forgive. Right? That's where their fear is coming from. It flows from a failure to forgive. And that's not just an early church problem. That's a today church problem, too. That's, a, that's a my, my problem. That's a right now church problem, right? And we see here that one way the church justifies their exclusion of people is by defining them by their past. So we can justify excluding Paul, Paul, right, from the church because of what he used to do. He was a Jesus-hating murderer. Was, right? But we found out all of Saul's sins, all of them, even killing Stephen, which Saul himself, as we know from the rest of his epistles, wrestled with for the rest of his life. So we, so we don't need other people pointing out his sins, too. He's got his own demons that are attacking him day in, day out about his past. But the church uses people's past to justify their own exclusion of them. And so we make them, and maybe we, maybe we do it in, in different ways today, right? Maybe we let them come worship with us, but we keep the circle tight. We keep them on the outside. We never let them right back in. But that's not what the believers did in Acts, right? This dude's out leading the charge, right? Once Barnabas steps up to the plate. So isn't, isn't, isn't excluding people, right, from our, from our worship, from our relationships, from the full onslaught of our love, excluding them from that because of their past, isn't that not one of the most hypocritical, hypocritical things that a community of forgiven disciples can do? Right? A community that boasts in a Savior who's greater than some of my sin? No, all my sin? A community that is not built, right, on what we've done, but it's built solely on what God has done? And then we, then we, right, exclude people because of their past. Is that not one of the most hypocritical things we can do? Especially given that we're a community sent on mission. Not because of anything we've done, because of what God has done for us. Jesus defines our mission in Luke 24, 47, right? To preach repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. So how can we preach repentance and forgiveness of sins without practicing it? How can we preach that mission, that message, without embodying it? And one of the main ways, I'm convinced, one of the main ways that we can combat the fear and disbelief that rises up within us is prayer. Prayer. It's one of the main ways we can lessen the grip of our flesh, right? Becoming more and more a community of God-like grace and forgiveness. Prayer allows us to actually practice what we preach. So, so what if we really prayed as much as we talk about what's wrong in the world or in our communities? Really, like really prayed as much. We spend as much time in prayer, right, as we do talking about and posting about, and tweeting about, and thinking about, and commenting about, and status updating about, and hashtagging about, and commenting, and liking other people's commenting on all the evil in the world, and in our own country, right? 
And please notice, I said, like, as much time in prayer as we do those things. I'm not talking about just praying and doing nothing else. Because I know, being from the suburbs, right, it's really easy. And being an upper middle class white guy, right, it's real easy for my culture, my generation, right, to just hashtag and thinking that's, I'm doing something about problems in the world. Changing my profile picture or putting little Arabic letters next to my name is all of a sudden, I'm on, I'm on mission for people. And then I never pray about it, I never do anything else about it, and I just watch TV and, you know, hope David Price, you know, can pick up the Tigers and turn their season around and everything can be okay, right? Because I hashtag something so I'm on mission, right? Sometimes I think, and I deal with this, I'm preaching to myself now, sometimes I think we have more uh, trust and faith in social media than I do in the sovereign God of the universe, Because if I had more faith, I'd pray as much as I do talk about everything else. And Jesus shows us how to pray, right? He says, our Father, who sits enthroned in heaven. Right? I'm typing away on my computer. Hashtag and stuff. I could be praying to the one who's over all things. Glorify your name on earth as it's glorified in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on this earth as it's already done in heaven. And then he goes on, right? And he says, right, back to Acts 9, what's he lead us to pray next? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us, right? So forgiveness, right back here, prayer and forgiveness. The emphasis in Jesus' teaching on prayer in Matthew 6 is not if we forgive other people, then, right, we earn God's forgiveness, Right? What Jesus reveals about prayer and, and forgiveness here in Matthew 6 is that as we're given eyes to see the depth of my sin against a holy, awesome, righteous, majestic God, right? And I come to understand what his justice demands to satisfy his wrath against my sin, the sin of other people becomes increasingly small. Right? It becomes small. Now, it doesn't mean that when people sin against me, it doesn't hurt anymore. Or it doesn't actually harm me. Right? It doesn't matter. And we should just shrug it off like it's no big deal and sing each other a weird Christian version of let it go. Right? No. You know, it's, we're not a Disney movie. Right? I mean, real sin really harms. And when it's done against you, it hurts. Right? But when, when we have a gospel focus... And we're praying the way Jesus taught us to pray, right? We realize that we have to hold in one hand that we need God's forgiveness just as much as we have to forgive other people, right? Because as we understand what the gospel means, what Jesus did to to satisfy God's wrath against my sin, then other people's sin doesn't matter so much. Because I realize how much sin I got and how much more I need Jesus, right? So Tim Keller talks a little bit about this in a a helpful way. Uh, It's been helpful for me, um, this aspect of forgiveness. He says that while grace and forgiveness are free to the person who gets it, right, it's very costly to the giver, right? It's very costly to the giver because no one can simply just forgive, 
right? The person who forgives has to absorb a debt or a loss in some way. We just sang about how God canceled debts, right? So if you're going to forgive someone, you have to absorb the loss. And that's true for the smallest of crimes, right? So like if you're the kids in here, right? Even the smallest offenses, when someone steals your candy, right? Or when that someone happens to be your parents after Halloween, right? You know, the daddy tax, right? And I take your candy and I eat it, right? And I'll be like, I'm sorry, I'll give you some more candy. Even if I give you more candy, right? I shattered some innocence there, right? You're like, next Halloween, you're going to be hoarding that candy a little bit. You're going to be like, all right, where's daddy, right? Because I did something that caused harm, right? So even if you forgive me and I try and make it right, there's something, there's something in the past now that you have to absorb to freely, truly forgive me. So from the smallest of crimes to the most horrific offenses, and we all know, and we see things on the news, and I don't know you, but I know there's people in my community, and I'm, I'm, I know there's people in this community who have had horrific things done to you by people in your community. So even if laws are broken, and legal consequences should be, and we should pray that legal consequences are handed down, To come to a place of true forgiveness in your heart demands that you absorb a loss. Because you can never undo what's been done against you. So just a quick brief note here because there's lots of stuff in the church and lots of things in the news and other communities around the country are dealing with stuff. So what I'm not saying is that uh, every specific situation demands the exact same course of action and reconciliation. Right? In horrific offenses, what we're not just saying is you need to just let it go and forgive. You need the wisdom of the community and your elders. And even we see in, Saul, in verse 27, Saul needed Barnabas to come and help him. Right? So what we're not saying is that every situation demands the exact same course of action, the exact same course of reconciliation. Right? But what we are saying is that true forgiveness in your heart can be achieved by God's grace right? through not your ability, but the, his ability that he gives you to forgive because of how you've been forgiven. It might take a while, right? You might need your pastors and your elders to really help you. You might need prayer requests like you just took to help you get there. But God can give you that ability and he wants to because we're a community sent on mission to preach repentance and forgiveness. And if we're going to preach it, he wants us to embody it. And he knows we can on our own. So he gives us the grace to do it, right? So we mature, right, as we explore the bottomless grace of the gospel. That's how we grow, right? As we gain an ever-deepening understanding of how much we've been forgiven by God in Christ. Then that forgiveness can flow from us, right, to others who have sinned against us. We can be, we can actually be a community of forgiveness, right, that can live the gospel because it loves the gospel. As you love the gospel, true forgiveness, right, can surge. God's, your love for God can surge within you and flow out of you to the community, right, when you realize how much you've been forgiven and how you've been forgiven. So often when people sin against us, right, we, we just sit and wait for them to come to us. But that's not how God did it for us. If he would have done that, we still would be long gone, right? It's while we were still enemies, while we still were a long way off. The, the greatest thing, right? The, the, the perfect situation would have been the church in Jerusalem going to Damascus after hearing about what they did for Saul, right? And starting this reconciliation. 
But this is God giving us a glimpse, right, how we can move there, how we can be churches that move out in gospel, love, and forgiveness. God took all our sin while we were still a long way off and threw it on his son who died for us and then rose again and conquered sin and death once and for all. So it's astounding, right? It's, it's amazing to me that when Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew 6, he teaches to couple our repentance to God for our sins with our forgiving of those who have sinned against us. That the regular action of remembering who God is and what he's done for us and what our sin is in light of who he is and what he's done for us and how he achieves our forgiveness leads you and I to a posture of humility and grace. We can actually be a community of forgiveness that people get a sense of humility and grace when they walk in among us because of the gospel, right? Now, that's not the normal, natural disposition of human beings, is it? When you're wronged, humility and grace is not what rises up within you. It's not what rises up within me. I, I, I know. I felt it in my own heart. Right? I've heard it in my own words. I felt it, right? I felt it in my, you know, angst. I've seen it, right? Seen it played out before me like an out-of-body experience when I'm wrong, right? Revenge, anger, a sense of vigilante justice to make those people pay for what they did to me, which when we boil it all down, right, is just pride. That's pride. One author writes, forgiveness flounders when I exclude myself from the community of sinners. So let me say that. Forgiveness flounders when I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Forgiveness flounders when I take a prideful view of myself and forget that I too am a sinner. Right? Forgiveness flounders when I come into the community with an attitude of I deserve. Right? I deserve better. Right? Or we can flip it around. I don't deserve. I don't deserve to be treated like that, to be looked at like that. I don't deserve this to happen. Right? But that comes from a very different understanding of human nature than the Bible teaches us. Because what's the only thing you and I really deserve? Death. And I'm not trying to be silly. I mean, I know, like, I want to fight for justice, right? We want to be, we want to be good neighbors. We want our kids to grow. I want to, I want Mac, I want Mac Pat or whatever you want to call it, Mac Pack to like, sir, I want that. I want kids to come to kindergarten like ready, right? I want all those good things. And they, des- we use the language, they deserve, right? They do deserve better because we weren't created for this mess, Right? But because there's a mess, the only thing you and I really deserve, truly, if we got what we deserved, right, we'd have death. We don't deserve any of the nice things that we have. We deserve death from the moment you and I took our first breath because of our sin, rebellion. But God, right? the same guy, Saul, who, pre- who preaches later in Ephesians, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, saved us, raised us, adopted us, seated us with Christ in the heavenly places, gave us an inheritance, right? Adopted us as sons and daughters, right? And then created a community. We who were not mercy have received mercy. We who had no home finally found our home. We were created for a community of forgiven sinners who love the gospel. So we live the gospel and now exist to preach the gospel. This gospel, man, it's our life. It's our life. That's why I love the brothers here that I know. 
right? That they love the gospel. We want to love it more together. We want to invite more people to love us, to love it with us, right? This is our life. The gospel is not just something we get past and move on to bigger and better things when we mature as Christians, right? That's like saying, all right, breathing is very elementary. It's for those kids at Mac Lit, breathing, right? We've moved on. Let's, let's get on with living, right? Wait, wait, you know, you can't live if you don't breathe, right? Now you get better, right? You get better in walking with the Spirit, hopefully, by His grace. You, you feel that when you, when you know someone who's been walking with Jesus for a long time, right? You just feel a different air about, about it, right? But man, you can't get past the gospel, right? The gospel's not just the doorway, but it's the pathway, right? That we live and we move. It, it, the gospel, if the gospel is just the doorway, it, then it gets you into the community, but then the rest of your life is about what you can achieve. And that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what the gospel is. Because it's not about what you can achieve, it's what you receive, right? I stole that, by the way. Right? I, I can't rhyme like that. Right? But it's helpful for me. The gospel is not about what you and I can achieve. But that when we look at the do- gospel as just the doorway, it gets us in. But then the rest of my life is about what I can do for Jesus. And me trying harder. And me doing this. And me doing that. But the gospel, right, if it's the pathway, it's about what we receive from Jesus. So it shapes how we live and love one another. It reshapes our values, right? And frees us to live with and love one another. Another, another quote, C.S. Lewis, right, about this. He wrote this. Um, the more pride we have, uh, the more other people's pride irritates us. And, and for this morning, we can change it. If C.S. Lewis was up here, he'd, he'd say, the more pride we have, the more other people's sin irritates us. Come into that community with a sense of, I deserve not praying regularly, killing that pride within us, remembering how much we've already be, been forgiven, right? But a community of forgiveness finds that the gospel continually breaks down the pride within us and the hardness of our hearts and begins to cultivate that humility and grace that, that is a characteristic of a community of forgiveness. And forgiveness then flows instead of flounders, right? Gospel just bursts forth out of us in the way we interact with one another, even when we're wronged, right? But our prayer should not only ask for the grace to forgive those in our own community who have sinned against us, but our enemies too, right? And sometimes it's easy to circle the wagons and forgive my brother because I got to see him next Sunday, right? But, but, but it's easy to say us against them and we forget to pray for our enemies. Jesus, if you want to turn there, Matthew 5, um, I think this is the memory verse for this week that I, that I um, gave. I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't use slides, so I'm really sorry. Uh, uh, but if you have a Bible, Matthew 5, we're just going to be here for a few minutes. Um, but Matthew, uh, or Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 43 uh, through 47, I'll read it. It says, uh, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have in heaven? All right, do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So Jesus kicks it up, as he often does in Matthew, uh, a few notches here, doesn't he? 
Right? Often when it comes to prayer, even within our own community, and I, I, I'm speaking from my community, I don't know about your community, maybe you're better at this than we are, but oftentimes in our, in our community, we say I'll pray for you much more than we actually pray for you. It's way easier to say I'll pray for you right, than to actually pray for that person. I don't know why. It shouldn't be. Right? But, but I got called out as a pastor, right, as a professional Christian in the room, right, by another pastor who asked me how he could pray for me, right, and um, we, I started sharing some prayer requests, and um, he, then he, you know, jumped in and said, oh, yeah, man, I struggle with that too, and sharing some prayer requests, and I said, I'll pray for you. And he's like, well, let's do it. Amen. And I was like, you know, I don't know why it took me 30 years to figure that out, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, why not? Because <laughs> I know my own heart that I'll forget five minutes from now and get caught up in getting lunch and doing all these other things. It's great to see those cards, right? Put them in a place. Because don't just say you pray, right? I know we do it, and I do that in my own heart, and I've learned, right? What, what does 15 seconds to pray with that brother and sister, what encouragement can come? Instead of just saying, I'll pray for you, say, I'll pray for you, and let's do it right now, too. Right? And often when we even do pray... I know the lack of faith in my own heart, I sometimes wonder if, if this prayer even matters. Because if God's sovereign, right, he's going to be in charge of it anyways, right? But prayer does change things as we see throughout the scripture. And what we see throughout the scripture is that prayer primarily changes you, changes me, right? It aligns my values with God's values. It starts to align my loves with what God loves. It's hard to pray with a bitter heart. Right? Especially if you're praying the Lord's Prayer. Forgive, forgive me my sin. Oh, yeah, I, gotta, I don't want to pray the rest of that verse. Right? And the gospel starts breaking us down. Starts churning up our hearts. Right? Starts helping align our loves right, with what God loves. And our lives, by His grace, live for His glory. So pray, prayer changes us from a people who live at the center of our own lives to people with God at the center of our lives. And not just just the parts that we want them to be the center of, right? Prayer starts to kill the pride in every area of our life, especially how we relate to one another, right? Because, right, uh, who doesn't, as Jesus says, love those who love you? Who doesn't return love for those who love you, right? That's, that's worldly. That, that doesn't prove anything, right? That just proves you're normal, <laughs> a normal sinner, right? You, you like your friends, they like your Facebook posts, you'll like their Facebook posts, right? They retweet you, you retweet them, right? That's how that works, right? But who, who, right? Jesus says, who loves their enemies, right? Love your enemies. And not, and, and not just in a Christian way, say, yeah, I love my enemies, right? Then go and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Loving enemies and praying for those who persecute you Right? Extending love and forgiveness, gospel, humility, and grace to those who persecute you, right? Proves in one way that God is working in you and that you're a son or a daughter of your Father who is in heaven. John Stott says, Jesus seemed to have prayed this prayer actually while the spikes were being driven into his hands. Not afterwards, not when he's hanging on the cross. But John Stott, when he was studying the Gospels, said that. Jesus was praying this prayer, it seems, while they were doing it to him. So what excuse, he goes on to say, right? What, what, if the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence Jesus' prayer for his enemies, what pain, what pride, 
What prejudice could justify the silencing of ours? What pain and what pride and what prejudice can justify our exclusion of people from our own community? Right? This is love. Our culture talks about love a lot, but this is love that's dramatically different than the culture knows or sees or has mostly experienced from the church. Right? This is love that is dramatically different. This is the kingdom breaking in. Right? When, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, when his community is sent out like this with humility and grace in prayer, right? with the power of the gospel, that's the kingdom breaking in on earth earth to the darkness this is divine grace as a megaphone to the world right being redeemed sinners set free from the bondage of bitterness and anger and pride and set free to image god's love and grace in this world right do you think you're a loving person i don't know one person who would ever tell me no right except my little daughter nora because she's four she's got an attitude if she knows i want her to say yes she'll say no right that, that's the only person I know who would say, no, I'm not a loving person. <laughs> Are you a loving person? Well, let's, let's stack that up against what the Bible says, right? Do you love your enemies? You're a loving person, then. Do you love those who are not like you? Maybe they're not enemies, right? We have our own ways of doing this in America, right? Do you love those who aren't like you? Do you love those who have the cool toys and the cool video game system and the cool cars and the cool stuff? Do you only show love to them because they can give you something? Do you, do you pray for those? Do you pray for those who are not like you? Who are different than you? Right? Do you pray for your enemies? Those who make your world hard. <laughs> Maybe they're not enemies like you're going to pick up guns and fight each other like it's going on in the Middle East, right? but just like work enemies or just peer enemies or they just make your life miserable. They just love making your life miserable. Do you pray for them who are mean and nasty and persecute you? Do we pray for them so that if God would lead them to show up on our doorstep, that, you know, we would be happy to see them instead of thinking there is no way that guy is going to be a disciple. He's just here to make my life more miserable. Right, the question then becomes, what do you want to see more? In this world, what do you want to see more? The power of sin and darkness and evil destroyed. Do you want to see the kingdom of God breaking in on those who are still outside? Right? For those who have still, as Colossians 1 says, haven't been transferred into the kingdom, are still in bondage. Do you want to see the kingdom of darkness destroyed? Or do you want to see your enemies pay for their sin? So to want your enemies to pay for their sin, that's natural and right and reasonable only according to worldly standards, right? But to bless and pray for those who curse and persecute you, right? That's a choice to actively align yourself. Mainly, we have to do that by prayer and word, right? And let the gospel flow through us by his spirit's power, right? That's a way of actively choosing to align yourself Right? with the loving character of God. And it's a choice that we have to start making more and more. And I know my own heart, every, sometimes every moment, to align myself as a person who embodies what we 
preach. So a community of forgiveness is a living, active witness, right, to the loving character of God and His amazing grace. How amazing is His grace? How amazing is His grace? Right? It's a grace so amazing that the person who hated the church the most now becomes its most prominent ambassador. A guy that I think that if the church, you know, did their little high school yearbook things, you know, who's most, you know, uh, whatever, voted most best person to lead our church the next 10 years, not one vote would have been for Saul. How amazing is God's grace, right? A grace so amazing that instead of hating, hating their enemy, right, they forgive him and they bring him in and they work with him. And in fact, when other people try to kill him, they all circle the wagons and try to save his life. How amazing is God's grace? A grace so amazing that instead of us hating our enemies, God gives you and I the grace to see our own story in their lives. That's grace. That's amazing grace. When the person who's hating you and persecuting you and making your life miserable, when you have gospel eyes to see your own story in their lives, right, that's amazing grace. Because remember what Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 2, 1, uh, 12. He says this, right? We too were once separated from Christ. Instead of hating your enemy, when you can say they are separated from Christ, they have no hope. They're without God in the world. That's humility and grace born out of loving the gospel. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean you don't need help getting there. But to, but to remember and see your own story in the lives of those who are lost around you. And to have a gospel compassion and say, they're separated from Christ. They're, they have no hope. How would you act if you had no hope? You try and grasp hope any way you can. Including pushing other people down. So you can get up a ladder you think is going to get you there. And without God in the world. A community of forgiveness loves the gospel and lives the gospel, right? And so we preach the gospel. We're sent with that message of hope into a world with no hope. We go boldly like Paul in verse 28, right? Because of how amazing God's grace to us is in Jesus. That's why he preaches boldly, right? And we go with eyes open, knowing a verse later they're trying to kill him because he's preaching boldly. So we know our enemies will try and destroy us. We see this all around the world today. Yet we pray for those who persecute us. As a community of forgiveness, we would rather they experience God's grace than his justice. Because you remember that you too were once on your hellbound race. And you were just one sovereign decision away from being separated from Christ. And without hope. And no God in your life in this world. One decision, one sovereign, had nothing to do with you. One sovereign decision and you would be just like them. What amazing grace in these verses. Complete reversal, right? At the beginning of chapter 9, Paul goes to Damascus to destroy the church and bring Christians back to Jerusalem as prisoners. Instead, he's running for his life back to Jerusalem, trying not to be a prisoner, trying to keep his head. And now, right, instead of hating the gospel, he's preaching the very gospel he hated in Jerusalem. Maybe in the same neighborhood as he killed Stephen. Amazing grace, right? A church that was persecuted and scattered forgives and reconciles with their greatest enemy instead of holding on, holding on to the things this world loves like revenge and bitterness and anger. All right, so as we come to the table here in a few minutes, let's remember afresh God's amazing grace. Just 
just sit for a moment and remember. Let God ignite that flame of love, right, for the gospel and for what he's done for you, how he's forgiven you. And that God's call uh, in forgiveness of our sins is a call to embody the forgiveness he's given us to the world around us. Having hearts that cancel debts freely because of how freely you've been forgiven. Hearts that open doors for reconciliation because you know that your back was still turned on your hellbound race when God called you. And that some of us need more than getting knocked off our horse to realize how much we need Jesus. So maybe there's someone even in this room that you need to forgive. Maybe there's someone that you need to ask for forgiveness in this room. Maybe they don't even know. <laughs> maybe you've been harboring something in here for so long, the other people don't even know. Move towards them in God-like love. Move towards those who have sinned against you in God-like love. Don't wait. Don't sit back in arrogance, in prideful Christian arrogance and say, I'll wait for that person to move first. That's not how God has treated us. This is how breaking down these barriers, you might be the first one to break down a barrier that allows the gospel to start flowing freely from one person to another person throughout community and neighborhoods down here in Detroit. So move in God-like love towards those who have sinned against you and invite them to move towards you in repentance and reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at your grace. How amazing is your grace? We need your help and your love. Make us a community that loves the gospel. And out of that love that you burn, that you fan into flame in our hearts, help us to live the gospel. In our own communities, in our own homes, in our neighborhoods, even this afternoon, help us to be embodying pictures of the gospel to our neighborhoods and god send us on mission as a community that's been sent to preach the gospel help us truly embody what it means to be a community of forgiveness for your glory i pray amen